Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to this session. Um, you know, I have a, a list of instructions here. <laughs> uh, this is Brian Easton, in case you hadn't known, and we're here to hear him talk about his recent book, uh, Not in Narrow Seas, a history of the New Zealand, uh, the economic history of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, uh, we need to thank, first of all, Victoria University Press and Penguin Random House uh, for this session. Um, I'm required to introduce myself, not that that matters very much. I'm Geoffrey Rice, uh, Jeff to my friends, uh, probably best known for my book on the 1918 influenza pandemic. Um, and uh, last year in November, uh, helped the Prime Minister unveil a, a national memorial, a memorial to the victims of the 1918 flu. And in my little speech, I um, warned her and Ashley Bloomfield, who was sitting in beside her, um, if you get another pandemic, you have to be very quick. Um, delay is dangerous. Complacency kills. And I'd like to think that my words were ringing in their ears earlier this year. <laughs> they got off the mark pretty quickly anyway. Um, now, we're going to uh, uh, exchange... I'll pose some questions to Brian. He will answer them. And we'll leave for 10 or 15 minutes or so at the end uh, to uh, enable you to ask questions uh, through the microphones that'll be distributed. Um, I need to say a little bit about you, Brian. <laughs> um, those of us of a certain age will remember fondly Brian's columns in The Listener, um, especially his columns critical of uh, Rogernomics and uh, looking at the University of Canterbury uh, library catalogue, I counted 37 books and papers authored by Brian about the New Zealand economy. And some of the books you'll be familiar with, um, uh, The Making of Rogernomics, um, The Commercialisation of New Zealand, uh, In Stormy Seas in 1997, The Post-War New Zealand Economy, uh, The Whimpering of the State, uh, The Nation Builders in 2001, uh, Globalisation and the Wealth of Nations in 2002. Um, I think this is a, a, my personal opinion, this is a very brave book, uh, and it's, it's a fine essay of interpretation, uh, bringing together various themes of uh, New Zealand economic history and making sense of over well over 200 years uh, and giving it a pattern, uh, I think, is Brian's major achievement here. Uh, but you didn't come to hear me rattle on. Um, we thought we'd begin uh, with a question that has some relevance for Christchurch, and that is to do with the impact of the 1880s depression uh, was it, in fact, a depression? And who was to blame for it? So, Brian, would you like to enlighten us a bit about the 1880s? May I first say that because of COVID, the book was never launched. So I like to think today is a launch. <laughs> uh, and I'm particularly glad to launch it in my Taronga Waiwai, which is Christchurch. And Christchurch has... <laughs> Christchurch has influenced the book enormously in ways that may not be obvious. Now, the only function of an author at a launch is to thank people, and there are two people in the audience I should like to thank. I'd like to thank Fergus Barrowman and his team. Uh, it, it was courageous to publish the book, um, and he did a wonderful job, and if you have any doubts of that, he designed the cover. The other person I'd like to thank is Elizabeth Caffin, who made numerous con um, 
contributions to the book. Uh, let me count the ways. No, I don't think I want to go down that way. Um, but thank you to both of those. Now, as far as the 1880s, the 1880s were a long depression uh, in the world, or at least in, uh, in, the, um, in Europe. And New Zealand was affected by that um, because uh, we had got through the 90, 1870s by heavy borrowing, and in the 1880s, we could only um, turn over the borrowing. We couldn't actually um, borrow more. And so that, in fact, the whole public works project uh, program sort of closed down. One of the effects was it made Harry Atkinson, who I think was one of our great prime ministers, th thought of badly because he was a, 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 a prime minister of austerity. Um, now, Christchurch had another complication on top of that, or perhaps two. One was that the wool industry, which had lifted uh, Christchurch in the 1870s and so on, was tending to run down. They were actually introducing productivity quite markedly, but in fact the price of wool was falling, so they were struggling a bit. And I think one thing that was going on, and which is underestimated in New Zealand, is we were doing a lot of soil depletion uh, and uh, fertility. And, and, and my way of interpreting the 1920s is we were still basically depleting the soil. And it's not until we begin to introduce fertilizer in the mid-20s that we begin to get um, farm productivity rise. The other factor, this is a long answer, sorry, um, is that there had been this big population boom. Industries had run down like, for instance, um, gold. And so what was the population going to do? And what initially happened was that they went into a number of manufacturing industries. And in fact, those manufacturing industries were struggling, partly because they were low productivity in any way. And the other thing is that with falling costs of, um, of shipping, they were being undercut by that. And the most famous example, which is not obviously in Canterbury, although it was involved, was the Sweating Commission, which was the treatment of young women clothing workers was just appalling. Um, so that's the short answer. <laughs> um, who do you think was, well, you've suggested that it was, a, it was because the world was in recession. Yeah. Um, did it hit New Zealand a bit worse because of our dependence on the banks? It, it hit us badly because in the 70s we had been borrowing mm. and that borrowing more or less stopped except in Auckland where they were borrowing on a project but for the rest of that. And the oddity about it was that what precipitated the long depression was the, um, the collapse of the Citibank of Glasgow. And basically what happened is they pretended they had gold here and gold here. And when the accountants found out, um, they jailed the directors, mm -hmm. even to the extent that when the directors came out of jail, there was a journalist sitting out there waiting to see them come out. I mean, it's a big thing. Now, the oddity about the City Bank, uh, City Bank, uh, Bank of Glasgow, it actually was a big investor in Australia and New Zealand, mm -hmm. stock and station agent. So that flow of funding, which had gone into the... Uh, wool sector had actually dried up on top 
of the mm -hmm. fact that the government couldn't um, borrow as much as, um, shall we say, Vogel wanted to. <laughs> um, yes, the, uh, you touched on the fact that um, wool was declining in, in receipt value. Um, the stock and station agents are very important in New Zealand, especially in the wool regions like Hawke's Bay and Canterbury. Um, and to some extent, they, they almost acted as banks, didn't they? They, they made advances on the wool clip, and most of the, um, the big stations relied heavily on them. Well, what happened was that um, although you could get a mortgage on land uh, from a quasi-bank, um, you couldn't get um, seasonal financing. And they were the seasonal financiers. Mm. Mm. And the trick was they were knowledgeable. Um, you may remember in 1971, uh, Muldoon paid a sheep retention grant and they discovered another two million sheep that they didn't know about. <laughs> now, what's going on there is how do you know that X has so many sheep? Mm. And essentially, the, the, the stock and station agents were monitoring because they were seeing the wool clip. They were, mm. And so they had a very detailed knowledge of the, the farm sector. Mm. And so that they um, developed at that stage and were very... Um, central to, to, to the industry, um, banks would not um, do short-term finance. Mm -hmm. Another source of short-term finance, of course, were the, um, the, the lawyers, solicitors' firms in Christchurch in particular. I think of the Leonard Harper bankruptcy, uh, which brought down mm -hmm. a lot of small businesses with it and especially overseas and family investors as yeah, well. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that story, sorry. Um, but one of the things that happened was that um, in those days, as far as I can work out, most mortgages were between two people. That is, not through a banking system. And the lawyer, of course, intervened. And then presumably they moved on to shorter-term finance, yeah. something like the... Um, company finance, uh, uh, the finance companies of the 2000s, and good heavens, they went bankrupt. We know what happened to them. <laughs> how about, um, would you like to comment, Brian, on how New Zealand recovered from the Long Depression? Well, there were two things that happened. One is that the world recovered. Um, the, uh, the Long Depression of the um, end of the 19th century eventually the financial system got going again. But what was crucial in New Zealand was the arrival of um, uh, refrigeration. Yeah. And the refrigeration, we associated with the, um, with the uh, ship uh, that in Eden taking off that, uh, the first refrigerated cargo. If it had sunk, and it could have, uh, it would have happened anyway, but, but symbolically we look at that. Now, what that did was it changed the nature of farming from the big, um, the big station, uh, at, which we all think of, you know, particularly for those from Canterbury, all the big stations, to the family farm, because the family farm didn't have to focus on... Um, uh, wool, it did wool and, and, and meat. And that meant the breaking up of the great stations. Uh, and essentially, you can see it slowly expanding um, 
the meat, uh, the meat originally was sheep meat. Uh, dairy didn't start until the early 20th century. Um, uh, and, and that was the nature of our recovery. And to give an interesting insight, in the 1880s, um, this is Keith Sinclair, in the 1880s, New Zealand thought of um, joining Australia as an Australian state. And indeed, in the current Australian constitution, there is the provision to let us join. But by the uh, time that the constitution, um, the, the actual federation of Australia happened in 1901, we were so prosperous, we were so confident of ourselves, we turned us down. Um, mm. And that tells you about that. And, <coughs> and, and it, essentially it was a, a, a prosperity uh, related to the growth of this new industry. And that wasn't just um, uh, the mixed uh, family farm. It also was the growth of the, um, of the freezing works. In fact, mm. uh, many manufacturing, and that would include Christchurch, actually slowed down or stagnated because they were sucked in by the, by the freezing works. Mm. Mm. Certainly the growth of manufacturing in New Zealand towns, um, you know, when you do research in, in the 1890s and early mm. 1900s, I, I'm always very struck by the great variety of things that were being produced. Mm. Um, here in Christchurch, of course, you know, Scott Brothers producing... Um, coal ranges and things like that. You're right, um, yeah. And there was a ready market for them as the small family farms uh, developed. Right. Um, One of the tricks sitting in there was that the country was still very isolated. And so you were locally providing for a very local market and you may not have been exporting even as far as the Maiden. Mm. And then, of course, the country slowly integrates uh, and uh, you get that consolidation of... Um, of the manufacturing. And the place right at the fag end of my childhood was breweries. Because mm. breweries actually, because of the um, glass bottles, are heavy to carry around. But right towards the, even in my childhood, most um, moderately sized town had a brewery. Mm. Uh, uh, there was one down on um, um, Mel um, Morehouse Avenue, wasn't there? Yes, yes. Uh, Christchurch had three or four big brewers, right. Ward's Brothers and uh, And, and they would have none now. Uh, oh, no, no, they're still going. <laughs> no, 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 no big ones. Oh, no big ones. Yeah, no, no. Then you get this next development, which is the craft brewery. Mm. But basically, um, entire chunks of the um, box of, 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 of um, cities were breweries just closed down completely. Mm. Uh, the local one I, I visit is a, um, is a supermarket in Wellington. But when I was first there, it was a, uh, a brewery, and the hot water from the brewery was actually transferred across the road to the swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> this has to be a New Zealand event if we got on to beer <laughs> in the back quarter of an hour. <laughs> Very good. Um, uh, a point that I wanted to pick up with you about the expansion of farming, as you say, dairying really doesn't come in fully until after 1900 or so. Um, uh, I wanted to put in a little plug, I think a little, one little gap in, in the book is um, mention of Akaroa Coxfoot seed. <laughs> <laughs> because this was, uh, if you look at um, uh, Eric Pawson's book with, with um, 
uh, Tom Brooking, you know, Seeds of Empire, um, Canterbury was actually very significant in providing high-quality seed for the enormous expansion of pasture throughout the British Empire. Oh, I hadn't realised that it was the British Empire. Can I add a story to that? Um, this actually issue is crucial if you're in the growing game. And when the Maori began um, uh, providing the settlers, I'm talking about the 1860s, um, they didn't know this, and they just took the seed and replanted it. Mm. And so each time it had more and more weeds because it hadn't been purified by that. And eventually a lot of Maori agriculture um, came to a grinding end because they were not producing high-quality seed because of the amount of weeds in it. Mm. So I, I, I knew... Um, yeah, Banks Peninsula still produces the seed, doesn't it? No, the, the industry That's died out after the First World oh, War. Well. But uh, it was for a while there. Vaughan Wood's little book it was very good, oh. showing it was a big employer during the 1880s Depression of, mm. of casual labour. Right. So that men would... Um, you know, living in Christchurch, their families would be in Christchurch, where they'd work on the railway extension up North Canterbury. Yeah. And then when the season came on, they'd all hoof over to Akaroa and, and work around gathering. This is like gallery gum in Auckland. Yeah, it is a very, very yeah. similar pattern. Yeah. Um, shall we move on now to, to look at um, patterns of immigration? It's a big theme throughout your book, the, the changing uh, patterns of, of uh, migration to New Zealand. What made it attractive for people to come from overseas? Was it New Zealand's reputation as an egalitarian society? Well, it depends what time you're talking about. I actually think it's a bit of a problem to explain why anybody came to New Zealand. When I looked at the individual <laughs> um, data, the actual um, incomes among the rich countries was very much the same. We might have been a bit higher but or, or not. We can't tell precisely... Um, anyway, they didn't have the data. And my own view is that people came not for high income but for opportunity. And the big opportunity was to own your own land. And I think one of the things that's going on, and I couldn't quite trace this, is that people had come off farms, perhaps as, as uh, tenant farmers, in the... Um, uh, 19th century England, there'd been a big collapse in farm employment. And so if you actually came from a farm background, there weren't opportunities for you in Britain. So you went and worked in the industrial centres. Or you came to New Zealand. And you get this persistent story of people going on to farms. Um, have a good... <laughs> Friend just died by the name Warwick Armstrong. And Warwick's um, great-grandfather, I think, was a successful um, taxi driver, which would be horse, in the 19th century. But when the chance came to have a farm in Taranaki, he dropped it all and he went up to um, uh, Taranaki. And I've got another friend, same story. She, he, um, the great-grandfather or the grandfather was driving the head of um, lands and survey and uh, he said we're having a ballot um, and he said oh I'll put in for that and he ended up um, up in near Culverton and the family is still far farming that Culverton. They were desperate to get onto 
um, onto farms. Mm. And I think, on the whole, they were not thinking of commercial farming in those days. They were thinking of actually pretty self-sufficient farming. We're in a little bit of cash off the side, but basically um, to... um, to, to, to have your own independence. And mm. I actually think that was probably crucial. Later on, you're correct that after Jedin, um, Seddon, people came here because it was seen to be a land of, of, of the, uh, the workers' land, the, the, um, a land of radical. Among the people who arrived on that basis was both Michael Don Seddon and uh, Michael Joseph Seddon. <laughs> Seven. Seven. I'll get there. And Peter Fraser. And Peter Fraser, oh. yes. yes. Um, <laughs> a thought went through my head. If you read Tony Simpson's books, of course, you think that what attracted people to New Zealand was food. <laughs> the thought of having three meat meals a day. Yeah, right. Um, if you read his books of uh, New Zealand right. food and recipes. Three mutton um, and meals of mutton yeah, a day. M- mostly mutton. <laughs> <laughs> well, that nicely brings us on to the early 20th century and the, uh, the end of the Seddon era, um, and what becomes quite manifest class conflict with the Red Feds and uh, the strikes, 1913 mm-hmm. and so forth. Would you like to comment on uh, to what extent those, what we see as political um, events, were deeply influenced by the economy? Well, what happened is that I remember I said that in the late 19th century there was the Long Depression, and then we have the great liberal boom, and that... Um, runs out in about 1908. And in fact, the economy stagnates from about 1908 through to 1935. The Depression is just the end of a period of very great stagnation. And immediately when you're not getting a sort of a rise in prosperity, you get that tension. And the obvious case for that is the... Oh, dear. What was the great um, coal... Uh, dispute over the West Coast. The, oh, the, um, the Black Ball Mine. The Black Ball Mine. Mm-hmm. Partly the Black Ball Mine was running down, but also um, people were... Um, the, the prosperity wasn't there, so that people... So you got the conflict. And that began... Uh, uh, and, and in a way, it's going back, isn't it, to the, the um, Sweating Commission, except now it's men and much more heavily industrialised. Um, and that sort of continued uh, until the war, and then the First World War changed the politics. Although people like, say, Peter Fraser were involved, but now they were um, involved about an argument about international class war warfare, mm. not about New Zealand class warfare. Mm. Which comes us back to the theme of egalitarianism to some extent. Yeah. Did some people come out to New Zealand thinking it was a working man's paradise? Uh, certainly, that was true, as I said, for uh, Savage and Fraser, mm. and uh, presumably lots of others, but they're documented. Um, uh, there was a lot of myths about New Zealand. Uh, New Zealand was described as the land without strikes which was too true until 1903, mm. but the myth continued much longer. Arbitration court, yes. Yeah. Mm, yes. Um, uh, would you like to comment on... Uh, there's, a, there's an atmosphere in Christchurch, I think, that the period around about the 1906 exhibition, Christchurch is very flourishing and very prosperous. Um, people are very happy with the way right. they are. Um, and they feel the 
you know, the, the, the red flags waving, uh, the strikes and so forth, alarmed respectable middle-class people. All right. <laughs> but, um, oh, yeah. uh, New Zealand, but Christchurch remained a very strong left-wing city politically, didn't it? Uh, it does still to stay, actually. And I think one of the interesting things about Christchurch is that you were talking about the growth of manufacturing, mm. and it's very strong in Christchurch at that period. And I had a friend who in the 1970s or 80s was looking at the manufacturing structure of New Zealand and there was still that strong manufacturing base in New Zealand. Light manufacturing had gone up to Auckland but heavy manufacturing still existed here and that's the residual of that, that period of prosperity and I guess what you're talking about is you, you get the switch to um, uh, mixed farming and the growth of farm servicing and the cities begin to evolve into being uh, farms of their own integrity. I, I've actually thought of that in the interwar period, but perhaps it started earlier in Christchurch, that the cities actually became to exist in their own right rather than just servicing farmers. There's a certain critical mass where yeah. they are feeding their own people, as it were. Uh, well, not only that, but when you have a library mm. or a, a, a literary group or that, that sorts mm. of thing, that's well documented in the book. Mm. Uh, I wondered if you could comment on, on Massey um, as a leader. Um, <laughs> did he have an economic policy? Well, I think it's a bit unfair to think anyone had an economic <laughs> policy in those <laughs> right, days. Yes. Um, my childhood, Massey was seen to be of Massey's Cossacks. Um, in fact, there's a sort of a recognition of him being one of our great prime ministers. He became Prime Minister, I think, in 1912. Right. And he died in office, I think, in 1925. That's 13 years. That's a long time for a New Zealand Prime Minister. And there was a transformation going on. Now, unfortunately, we lack a good biography of, of Messi. We've got junk biographies, but hope you're not in the room. <laughs> but, um, but we don't have a good biography. We've got bits and pieces of him. Uh, for instance, I hadn't realised until recently by, um, I think it was James Watson, who was yes. a, probably a colleague of your, um, student of, mm. of your, um, has been working on his role in the First World War in terms of imperial relations and the movement mm. of New Zealand's independence. Um, so Massey, Massey was an extraordinary man. And I'll tell you one place where he has a bad reputation, which is unjustified, um, at one stage, his uh, government decided to prosecute, the cabinet decided to prosecute a, um, a Roman Catholic bishop for sedition. That's right. mm. Apparently, Massey didn't want to. Although it was his cabinet, it, it was the, the, the madman in the cabinet. And uh, in other words, by that time, he moved into becoming um, a statesman who was trying to think, keep things quiet, and these, these mad Protestants who wanted to do the, the, the <laughs> yeah. Catholics. Mm. And I guess the clue to me is one um, Prime Minister, one politician I greatly admire, um, is, um, is Coates. And Coates um, took over from Messi, and at one stage he said, I miss the old man. 
<laughs> and mm. when a, a person as extraordinary a politician as Coates says, I really valued Massey, mm. I have to. <laughs> right. No, um, Massey, I think you're quite right, is, is probably our most underrated Prime Minister. Um, we lack Jane, the biography. Well, Jane, there, is a, there is a very competent biography by um, a retired school teacher in Wellington, that, which oh, gives I, you the day-to-day oh. -day narrative. Um, uh, and James Watson has been working on him for a long time. Yeah. I even toyed with the idea of writing his yeah. biography a while ago. But there are no personal papers. His son, Walter, burned all of his private correspondence oh. uh, after his death. And so there's, there's, there's that dimension of him. So it's easy to portray Massey as the, as the bigoted Ulster Orangeman, yeah. which he wasn't. He wasn't at all. He was a much more um, tolerant man than that. But he did get involved with um, British Israelites towards the end right. of his career, which is about equally balmy, I think. But, uh, um, no, Massey, I think, uh, handled New Zealand's involvement in the First World War very skillfully. Right. And he was regarded during the, uh, cabin the war cabinet meetings in London and also the uh, Versailles meetings as much more of a statesman-like figure than the Australian Prime Minister, who was right. a bit of a joke. Mm. Actually, but, a useless fact is that a House of Parliament is on Massey Avenue. In Ulster, in Belfast. In Belfast, that's right. Stormont. <laughs> Stormont's on Massey Avenue, that's right. We've got to move on a bit. There's a lot more to go through. But um, I thought perhaps we could um, uh, skim over the, uh, the 30s. It's been a well-trampled area. Um, I think for most readers, what will be most surprising from your book is that you don't regard the uh, Britain joining the EEC as the great turning point. The thing that you finger is the 1966 drop in wool prices. Would you like to comment on that? Well, the date is pretty clear that um, in 1966, the price of wool fell 40%. Now, you think of you running a business and your price is falling 40%. You really are in trouble. And the farm sector, particularly the sheep sector, suffered. And indeed, New Zealand suffered. And at that stage we began to, the economy get, began to alter. Now, there's two stories to that. One story is <clears throat> that uh, we begin the great diversification. And between 1966 and 1980, New Zealand became from an extreme country, in, um, OECD country, in terms of um, exporting, where we export and what we exported, among the OECD by 1980, only 14 years, we're in the middle. Mm. Now, that's an extraordinary achievement. And that diversification has happened well before we entered the European... Um, For Britain. Uh, Britain had entered the European community. Um, I always think myself um, that it's a... Um, it's really sentiment and nostalgia... And there's an interesting story, if I could give it. I don't think it's in the book. But um, the New Zealand government's position was that Britain should join the European community, uh, providing they looked after our interests. Mm. And we operated on that basis, and they knew it. But in order to get the maximum leverage... Uh, against the Brits, we um, 
allowed the New Zealand population to think it was going to be a disaster. <laughs> uh, and, and so there was, there was this, this, this quite interesting distinction going on. Um, and so we, so our, our historic memory is of it being a disaster, but it was probably in the end good for us good for Britain that they joined, and we will see that mm. next year. Mm. Um, so, uh, uh, so, so the story of what happened is actually different from what we think happened. But what the data shows is that we have begun diversifying very substantially. And there's all sorts of interesting stories there. For instance, we had done the diversification. The one place we did could not find the new markets was um, for butter. And so we did a deal uh, in which we prioritised butter to the community rather than cheese. Mm -hmm. And one of the factors that was sitting behind us was Pompidou came from a cheese area <laughs> in, um, in France and we thought we would get more leverage by offering butter rather than cheese. Now, <laughs> do any of you remember in the 70s the campaign The Bigger Block of Cheese? That was us diversifying from Europe back into New Zealand. They were selling you the surplus cheese <laughs> that we had because we were getting more, more butter. Excellent. Now, you just said it probably did us good in the long run, even though we thought it was a disaster at the time. Would you say the same of Rogernomics? <laughs> the book actually is one of the most sophisticated accounts of Rogenomics there are. And it starts off in 1966 because what happened was the wool price fell and we had to actually restructure the economy. And in the 70s, we sort of denied this. And so the, the, the elite, I use the example of the planning council, um, kept trying to go back before 1966, but you couldn't. And Rogenomics came along, and it was a response to our failure to adjust for 1966. Now, I think that they were a pack of lunatics. Um, that is, that uh, they were very extremist. Um, uh, the, the book actually at one stage tries to offers, two stages, it offers a defense of them. Um, but, uh, so I've tried to actually give a balanced account, but basically I've gone through a lot of detail and explained what they got wrong. So one thing is we had to adjust to 1966 and the market liberalisation made sense, but then they took it to mad extremism and we're still trying to untangle that extremism. The neoliberal theory yeah. tends to... Yeah. It still survives, I think, in some government departments. I think that, say, Grant Robertson, would, if he was here, would deny he was a neoliberal, mm -hmm. and yet I can actually give lots of examples where his government has been neoliberal. Mm -hmm. In fact, one of the interesting things going on, um, the book actually um, went to the printer just before the COVID crisis, so don't expect anything on that. I've got a bit on pandemics, oh, yes. but... Not, um, <laughs> Uh, one of the things is that the COVID crisis is actually disrupting the whole um, austerian economic policies that we were running before then.
Yes. Uh, one of the best quotes from that part of your book, I think, is the, um, Sir Geoffrey Palmer's comment that uh, when we finally got our hands on the levers of power, we found they weren't connected to anything. <laughs> <laughs> A typical Geoffrey Palmer comment. Very good one. You, you've well, got the wrong tone of your voice. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Um, I'm just trying to think of a final I always question. think of Geoffrey as the remark that um, Queen Victoria said of Gladstone. Um, she said of Gladstone, uh, he addresses me as if I am a public audience. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, I'm going to throw it open to Brian for his last concluding remarks before we throw it open to the audience for questions. Um, would you like to comment, Brian, on the, on the process of writing? Because this has been a long time... Coming. Um, it's been a long gestation period, as it were. Um, actually, um, it began in the 60s. The first writing I did was actually historical yeah. economics. Um, but uh, about 15 years ago, I had finished a book on globalization, and I thought, what next? And I went into this, and it's bringing together a lot of writing that I've done. So you mentioned listener columns. Mm -hmm. um, I'd, done bits of it, and I brought it all together, and I started off the logical way. I started at the beginning, and I'm terribly logical. I started 650 million years ago <laughs> because New Zealand didn't exist 651 million years ago, and I've, I, I've stepped it forward bit by bit. One thing which is I had some themes I wanted to talk about right from the beginning. I wanted to talk about the environment. I start off and finish off with the climate change, which seemed to me to be very interesting. Uh, so there's a whole range of things like that. But I was also surprised how much I learned. <laughs> well, the actual writing process, how do you go about it? Um, I, I did it sequentially, chapter by chapter by chapter. Um, I was lucky that I got some funding for some chapters, some I didn't. So I started off, um, I went to talk to a guy by the name of Graham Stevens about the, the, the um, geological origins of New Zealand. Mm -hmm. um, there was actually, can I, just to give you an illustration of my thinking, um, there, were a, um, a, 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 there was a geological problem in my mind, which I knew in 1966, New, the New Zealand economy stagnated and fell, and the Australian economy took off. And I wondered, why was it that they had all these minerals mm. and we didn't? And so I went off to this bloke, Graham <laughs> Stevens, and he explained to me about cratons and so on. So you can see I was actually thinking about trying to explain a bit of our history. And one of the oddities of the book is I'm writing away there and... We still haven't got any humans in the country yet, 232 CE, in which Taupo took up. Now, Taupo, when it blew up in, 19, in 232 CE, was one of the biggest explosions in the world that we have record, records of. Um, uh, I, I just hope it doesn't do it again in my <laughs> lifetime. And the oddity was um, the wind was coming from the southwest, and the um, uh, ash went into the north and uh, west of New Zealand, 
And because of the nature, see the sort of geological reason I'm talking about? The nature of that sort of volcano compared to the ones in Auckland, it lacked key trace elements. And it lacked cobalt. And as a result, um, the soil north of Taupo is um, uh, lacking in cobalt. And as a result, uh, we have bush sickness. Now, that's, you say, that's geology, Brian, that's interesting. But the next bit of the fascinating story is this. Maori were all located, about 80 or 90%, 80% were located north of Taupo. They couldn't get into far into wool. Mm-hmm. So just when the wool economy is taking off, the Maori is blocked out of... Um, of getting wool, and that's one of the things which actually slows down Maori development. Mm. So something that happened before there were any humans in New Zealand actually shaped our race relations in the late 19th century. And it keeps going, the story keeps going on. One of the great powerful tribes at the moment is Tuwharatoa. Forgive me, there are many other powerful tribes, but allow me to talk about Tuwharatoa, who were on, um, on uh, this, this land without the cobalt, okay? So they start, so guess what? We weren't interested in it. So they kept their lands. And in fact, we built the great um, um, uh, forests on there. Then we discovered that we could add cobalt. That's an interesting story. Um, uh, History is fascinating by interesting <laughs> stories. Um, uh, we mm. discovered that um, uh, the cobalt, um, that cobalt would put on it and that the, you could regraze it. And suddenly, Tuwharatoa discovered they had all this highly productive land. Mm. And so that's why they are an exceptionally rich, powerful tribe. Mm. Um, so, the, so the story I'm telling you is that geology really did shape us. Oh, there's another geological story. And... Uh, that um, fascinated me. I once a sort of interchange between the Secretary of the Treasury and um, a, um, Mike Moore, who then was head of the WTO. And um, Mike uh, was going on about what a wonderful country we had with lots of seashore and beach. And the Secretary of the Treasury, who was a good friend, who was a good, he is a good friend, Alan Bollard, said, I want to tell you uh, Mr. Moore, that in fact we have the wrong shaped country <laughs> and, and we really need it round because economically that would be better. Now why is New Zealand the shape it is? Reasonable question? Short answer. 650 million years ago the Eurasian came off the, the, um, off the craton Settled along the what we now think of as the Australian um, coast, and compacted and, and, and gave us the, and then it split away from Australia and then Antarctic, and we're the shape of actually running along the side of Australia, and that's why we're long and thin rather mm. than mm. <laughs> big and round. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Brian, for that comment. I think we'd better, better throw it open to the audience, although I'm very glad we've come back to things like basic things like soil <laughs> mm. um, and uh, 
uh, yes, I think we're taking the long view. I think what all historians are after are satisfying answers to problems and questions about the past. And even going back that far, I think, can provide us with some interesting ones. Um, in my list of instructions, I'm going to tell you this now, in case I forget it at the end in the, in the <laughs> deluge by applause. Um, the author's books will be for sale at the UBS stand out in the foyer after all of this, and Brian will be available uh, to sign them there. Um, but now we'll open it up to the audience and ask if there are any questions. Any questions? One down here. Thank you, Brian. I'd like to know a bit more about the early days of the Maori economy just as settlers were arriving because they were a thriving community and, and often provided food for the early settlers who were really going to struggle without it. Um, the book actually goes back before the uh, Maori arrived. Uh, and I'll change that in a moment. Because I talked about... One of the things is that all migrants brought baggage, so I actually talked about uh, what they were like in Polynesia. Then we had what I call the proto-Maori, because the Maori were not... Um, the, the Polynesians that came here were not Maori. They evolved into Maori. And then we had what is actually the longest economic regime in New Zealand, which was the 19... Uh, which ran basically from about the 13th century to the 18th century. Um, it's worth remembering that it was not a market uh, uh, economy. And I talk a lot about that. And then the European came, and you have the shift of the Maori from being essentially a what we call a gift relations economy to a commercial market economy. Um, they had a high, high standard of living uh, for the day, but they did not have the technologies, and so um, they took up these technologies with alacrity. Unfortunately, you see, if, if the, story is, the story you normally tell, you can see it in the Pacific Island literature, is that these people were living on the, um, uh, in pretty poor conditions. In fact, they weren't. I mean, the missionaries complained about the Pacific Islanders not working. The reason they didn't work, because they had enough, you know. And, and so they were like that. But they took on these technologies. Uh, uh, many of the technologies were disastrous. Um, we normally think of the one we mentioned as the musket. Because what did you do in your spare time? You played rugby. Only in the Maori case, it was warfare. And then they armed some of them with these muskets. And it was a really a rather brutal experience. Um, Jamie Ballester makes a really interesting remark that, in fact, it was the potato walls because potato the switch from kuma to potatoes made it much easier to go for long expeditions. Um, well, that was settled down. Uh, eventually, every, all the Maori got um, uh, armed and they realised rugby played with, um, with muskets was not much fun. Uh, and then the commercial of New Zealand came. The, the Maori initially were absolutely crucial in the, um, in the prosperity of the, um, Euro uh, of the, or the survival of the European. I know that's true. Um, part of my relatives are from Nelson, and it was Maori feeding of them that w which did that. Um, but eventually, 
as I've said, they could not. They were very adaptable people, but they could not get into the wool economy. And incidentally, where there were Maori, like down in the uh, near wool, or like in the South Island, they were actually very prosperous. So that's broadly the quick story of the Maori. The Maori. There are actually, I think, eight chapters in the book and some other sections which, which discusses them. Another question. I think there's a man, somebody up there had a question? No. Oh, sorry, that was, I saw his hand <laughs> sooner than yours. Thank you, Brian. I've You're recently next. read Marilyn Waring's political memoir, and I wonder if you'd like to give some reflection on the role that feminism has played in the New Zealand economy or, or find some excuse to mention. Um, I... Uh, there actually are a couple of books, a couple of chapters in the book, which are revolutionary in terms of thinking about the women's economy. Um, I'll avoid discussing Marilyn Waring, if I may, uh, and perhaps just tell you the background to it. Um, reading 19th century novels, you are struck by the number of the role of servants they don't appear in the novels, but they're there. And I realised that, in fact, you didn't have washing machines in the 19th century, you had servants. So what I began looking at was the household economy as an economy, not as a market economy, but as a productive enterprise. And I begin to uh, evolve this. And one of the things that happens to the economy, it becomes very much more productive. You get washing machines, so you can reduce the number of servants you have. By the way, um, although you had paid servants, there were almost as many, 20, double the number of relatives um, assisting in, in 1901. Um, so that what we get is a transformation going on within the women's, um, within the household economy, which was women-dominated, of course, and again, that's clear in the data. Um, and, uh, uh, and the rising productivity, and that then in the, um, uh, after the war, pushes ma a woman out into the productive workforce, into the market workforce, the paid workforce. And so that story is traced in two, two, two chapters. Um, and uh, I actually had um, Helen Leach help me quite a lot on that, but um, I've, I've always felt a very uncomfortable story, which was sort of um, the current women being rather critical of their grandmothers. And I actually think the grandmothers were doing a good job, but they were running households with uh, inferior cooking, inferior preserving, inferior um, um, washing machines and so on. So I think actually those two chapters are... A, a, a really very original, innovative um, chapters in the book. They're not the only ones, I hope. <laughs> Question over here. Hi. Um, I'm, I'm going to dare to ask two questions. The first question is historical. I'm just wondering, why did the wool price drop so much in the 1960s? And then my other question is current. New Zealand um, is constantly told that we rate very badly for productivity compared to other countries in the world. And I'm wondering, is it that the measurement of productivity 
favours economies like Luxembourg that are insurance and finance? Or do New Zealanders genuinely work too hard for too little return? Um, the first answer is that I've never seen a coherent, detailed account of why the wool price dropped. Probably because of the nature of the stocks and the supply chains, it was on the drift down, but the way the markets work, it collapsed. And the usual explanation is twofold. One, after the war um, in Europe, there was a big housing boom, and you had to put in carpets, and our wool are carpet wools. And the other thing which cut across us, and is still killing the wooling industry, wool industry, is the artificial theory. Uh, 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 so that's the first question. On the second uh, question, um, I've been an outlier on the productivity argument in, in New Zealand. Um, and what I can show is, for instance, that the, uh, the productivity has um, fallen... Um, uh, fell in, in, uh, first of all, we had a big drop in productivity with the wool price collapse, and that doesn't surprise you. And the other big drop in productivity was with the Rogenomics, and we're not allowed to mention that because that would be critical of neoliberalism. Um, on the whole, our growth of our productivity is not very different from the rest of the world. But you're right, there's a major um, measurement problem and you chose a beautiful example of that, which is Luxembourg has one of the highest um, productivity output per worker, sorry, output per member of population in the, in the world. And the reason for that is lots and lots of workers live outside Luxembourg. They come and they're calculated as part of the production, but they're not calculated as a part of the of the population. So there, there are quite severe um, measurement problems. There's, I'm afraid there's a bit of ideology sitting behind on the productivity area. Uh, this isn't about the book. Um, which is, uh, I have a set of policies. The truth is that I've got no evidence they'll work, but you put them in, mate, uh, and they're going to increase productivity. There's no evidence that any country has been ever able to accelerate its productivity as distinct from other forces that have changed it. There, I'm afraid we are going to have to wrap up um, before the hour. Uh, thank you all for your attendance. Um, uh, as I say, Brian is available to sign books out in the foyer, uh, and I'm sure he'd be happy to answer any further questions that you might have to, uh, to put him. Could we end by thanking Brian very much for his attendance here and uh, speaking to us? Thank you.